And we're going to be in Ezra chapter 3, and since it's in the Old Testament, I'm going to give you a little longer time to be able to find it. Uh, Ezra chapter 3, we've been focusing this year on discipleship. Now, every year the church focuses on discipleship, but in a, a very intentional way, we're trying to frame, again, for ourselves, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And one of the ways that we're doing that is going through a sermon series where we're looking at seven core teachings of Jesus as he calls the disciples to himself. The other thing that we're doing is on the first Sunday of every month throughout this year, we're preaching on a core spiritual discipline or practice. Um, A practice of the Christian faith that we believe is essential to someone's discipleship. Um, And together, these practices form like the scaffolding on which the building of Christ can grow or the trellis on which the vine of Christ's love can be formed in our lives. And without the structure of these disciplines and practices, it's hard to grow. Uh, Last month, we talked about reading the Bible And this morning, we're going to talk about the importance of gathered worship, kind of what we do on Sunday morning. And to do that, we're going to look at Ezra chapter 3, just a little bit of background. This is a text that's being written right after the Israelites, who for a generation had been sent into exile. They're now returning to the promised land. And the very first thing that they do is reestablish worship. Ezra chapter 3, this is the Lord's Word. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak with a fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set up the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening, And they kept the feast of booths, as it was written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moons, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made freewill offerings to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. I want to skip to verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, and this is what they sang classic for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever towards israel 
And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people couldn't distinguish the sound from the joyful shout from the sound of the people weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, would you be with us? And lead us to a place where we could shout with a great shout, for He is good and His steadfast love endures forever. We praise You, we give You thanks, in Christ's name, Amen. Alright, so the exiles are returning home to the promised land after at least a generation away, scattered all over the Middle East. They'd been away from the promised land without access to the temple. They haven't been practicing the regular burnt offerings or the sacrificial system. All of these traditions and rituals that were so important to their faith. And now they're returning home and they find it in ruins. Everything needs to be rebuilt. And what is the first thing that they do? What would you do? They reestablish worship. In verse 2, they build the altar and they reestablish the sacrificial system. In verse 4, they resurrect and reestablish the liturgical calendar. They celebrate Christmas, or in this case, the Feast of Booths, and all of the symbolic feasts that symbolically remind them of the great acts of God and their place in that story. And in verse 7, they begin the the construction of the temple, and they reestablish the priesthood. And it talks about the vestments of the priests. These are the fancy duds that the priests wore that had so much symbolic meaning for them. And then in verse 10, after uh, the foundation of the temple is laid, there's this ribbon-cutting ceremony, and they pull together finally the worship band, the choir with all of the symbols, and they sing together responsively uh, this crowd favorite, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever, uh, uh, forever towards Israel. And all of the people shouted with a great shout, it says. Seventy years away from the promised land. Seventy years in which it had been proven that they could sustain faith without these practices. Now they're back in the promised land, and what's the very first thing that they do? Reestablish worship. This is what gets me about that. During the pandemic, we had like six months where we had to worship online. Most congregations stopped meeting at least for a time. And during that time, we had to evaluate, what does this mean to us, this worship thing? We as a society had to ask whether in-person worship is more like going to a restaurant 
or more like the elementary school education system? Is it more like a nice perk in our lives? Or is it something indispensable to us and essential? Does corporate worship matter? How essential is it? Should I go back to it? Is this a fundamental part of what it means to be a follower of God? And here's the thing. For many in my life, the jury is still out. Because faith for them actually seems easier and less complicated without church. And there's many reasons why that may be the case. But for many folks, that's just the reality. There's so much access to to good teaching. And there's just the thought, if I have like my faith and my podcast in my spiritual director in a good walk around Holmes Lake, and I love Jesus as much as I did before I stopped going to worship, why should I go? Does corporate worship matter? It's just a question that's in the air right now. And for the rest of us who are here, because I recognize I'm preaching to you and you came (laughs) this morning, there is an equal and opposite danger to come week in and week out and to have what we do here become rote and mundane, just something that we do uh, instead of something that has such a deep impact on us. What is worship? Why do we do it? And I thought a good place to look to answer those questions was at the heart of these returning exiles. To simply ask the question, what did they believe about worship that made it so highly valuable to them? That's where we're going. Are you ready? Let's do it. First, they believed in the power of worship to unite people together it's right there in verse one you could have just read past it when the seventh month came the children of israel were in the towns and the people gathered together as one man or let's just say as one to jerusalem now that is significant because not only have they been scattered throughout um the Middle East during the exile, taken out of their homeland. But before the exile, Israel was a deeply divided people. The people of Israel had been separated into the northern and southern kingdom. For hundreds, it's been hundreds of years since they've been united as one nation. But here they are. Coming together around these shared cultural practices, these ancient rhythms, and letting their hearts be reconciled to one another through them. Communities need these types of things. They need accountability, some reason to gather together, and they need sticky habits that unite people together. They need shared stories from a past to help them remember what's important. And in these corporate patterns of worship, Israel found a way to 
express their unity and also to keep them together. And worship plays the same role in our lives, in our community. On the one hand, it's a tangible way for us to express uh, our unity, even as it draws us closer together. For one, it just brings us together. It creates the occasion for us to gather, and it creates an opportunity for our lives to overlap with one another. And when that happens, we're reminded of something really, really significant. That our faith isn't about abstract ideas. And our faith isn't about life hacks to help offset life's brokenness. The Christian faith is about love. Love for God and love for neighbor. And here's the, here's the interesting thing. <laughs> love requires others. It requires relationship. It requires the presence of something that a digital worship experience or a commitment to solo Christianity can never provide. It provides the wonders of skin and handshakes and hugs and faces and names and bread and wine and spontaneous conversation, some shallow, some deep. It provides the gift of the inconvenience of another person. Another person without whom we cannot be the person that Christ is calling us to be. I need to hear babies squirm and cry. I need to see the red eyes of the people in the pew next to me. It reminds me of where love is needed, where grace is needed. And it's all a part of what it means to be one. And it doesn't just bring us together. It unites us with people that are different than us. And it forces us to come around something that marginalizes our differences. On every, any given Sunday, I'm around all sorts of people. Y'all. Diverse group. On just about any scale you could choose. Maybe not as diverse in some ways as we would hope. But it's certainly more diverse than our social media feeds, affinity groups, and living rooms. And so here we are, inmates and CEOs, immigrants and counselors, addicts and medical professionals, all singing the same songs, eating at the same table, having the playing field of life leveled for us at the cross, opening our hearts to resurrection, gathering together as one. It's one of the hardest and best things about church, having to worship with different ages, classes, ideologies, cultures, different people with different political beliefs. It's inconvenient, but also truly grounding, nourishing, 
and good. On the one hand, it it humanizes the proverbial other side of the aisle, even as it reminds us that the things that unite us are greater than the things that divide us. The local church gathering at its best preserves that space for us in the world, for people, diverse people, to be gathered as one. And not just one with one another. It unites me with the broader church. To people in this moment on every continent, in every culture, who are gathered on the Lord's Day to do pretty much the same thing that we're doing here. And to think that it not only binds me together with those people, but it also binds me with the hearts of people throughout history who lived in this rhythm and who believed this stuff. Most of the things that we do here or say here are pretty ancient, or at least are rooted in ancient practice. That's especially true of something like the Lord's table. And so some mornings I like to imagine our little table like stretching out and reaching out, reaching out to the past so that all of the saints that lived before us are somehow joining us at the meal. And there's tables, there's there's a place set at the table for folks we've lost in the present, recently, who we will be with forever in glory. And it reaches out in the future to hold a place at the table for everyone who will believe this stuff after us. And I think of those people sitting with me, and it honestly strengthens my faith. And I'm reminded of why I believe when it's hard to believe. I'm reminded that as good as that Brene Brown podcast is, and it was good, that there are wells deeper and more ancient. Wells of living water that will outlast the modern wisdom or controversy or fad. The local church gathering at its best preserves that space for us in the world where we can be gathered as one. They believed in worship's ability to unite. Do you? Next, they believed in worship's ability to transform. I see this in verse 3. They set up the altar in its place, and then there's the word for... And the word for is trying to create a causal connection. It's telling us why they did it. And it said they did it because fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. Fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And so they worship. Now I think worship is a funny thing to do if you're simply scared for your physical safety. Sure, you want to seek the Lord's faith and his protection, but I think you would pray and then the very next thing you do would build a wall or build an army. But the very next thing that they do is start up the liturgical calendar and they celebrate Lent. They celebrate the Feast of Booths. Their fear wasn't for their physical safety and health. It was for their spiritual health health and safety 
You see, while they were gone, the Israelites got some new neighbors. Part of the exile program was Babylon and Assyria, not just moving people out, but moving new neighbors in. So that if the folks ever came back home, it'd be harder for them to regain their cultural identity. And so they had new neighbors with new customs, stories, values. And how were God's people going to remain distinct like the salt and light people of God in the world? How were they to remain distinct? Their answer was worship. Worship. The the burnt offerings, the rhythms of singing and praise. They focused on the church calendar, all with a hope of remembering who they were and to keep them from drifting off into slowly becoming like the culture around them. For them, worship was not simply a means of expression or even a place of learning. It was a place of formation. And they understood something really key about spiritual formation, that it's inevitable, that the formation of a soul, that isn't just a Christian thing or a religious thing. It's a human thing. We are all being formed into something through worship. We're all becoming a certain kind of person through the habits and rituals that we participate in that shape our hearts. We are all the disciples of someone or something. There are forces in our lives conspiring to shape us into a certain person by redirecting our love and our worship. For Israel, it was Babylon and Persia For us, it's the iPhone and the marketing directors that create the algorithms that fill our screens that call us to worship all the time. And also the good folks at Hallmark and the way they frame the holidays we celebrate. In other words, you don't need to go to church to be led through a liturgy. Every time you turn on your phone, you're called to worship. You don't need to go to church to hear a declaration of sin. You hear it all the time. People pointing the finger at one another. You don't need to come to church to hear a sermon. Someone trying to tell you what's true and beautiful and good. You don't have to go to church to celebrate special days. Valentine's Day is coming up. New Year's Eve, that was just a little while ago. We even have secular versions of Christian holidays, like Christmas and Easter, to compete with. Man, just picking up your iPhone the 40 millionth time that day is a repetitive act of worship. You're not worshiping the iPhone, but the iPhone affects what you see as worthy And where you get your worth. And if we're honest, all this stuff is leading us to worship. To to think about how we spend our time, money, our bodies, our relationships. Shaping how we think about what is worthy. 
and where we get our worth. And some of the messages we get week in and week out are good. And some of them are bad. But God's people have always seen the need for a place of counterformation. A place where there could be practices and rhythms that keep us tethered to Jesus, to his story, to his kingdom, to his values. A place where through rhythm and practice and ritual and song, we could reinforce a counter-narrative of truth and wisdom of love and grace. A place where week in and week out, we can rebuild our sense of what actually matters. And that's what we do at worship. We are called to worship at the beginning of our services, not by an advertisement, but by God himself. And we sing songs about sacred things, like when it's dark in the world and you still have hope and you can still sing because the gospel is true. And we declare sin, not of other people. <laughs> we point the finger at ourselves, And we cultivate a humble heart and we recognize how we've contributed to making the world the mess that it is. And then we receive forgiveness and grace. And we recognize that our worth isn't in like our job. It isn't in being a good parent. It isn't whether we had a good or bad week. Our worth is found in the smile and declaration of God that he loves you and will never let you go. We fight entitlement and selfishness by like giving our offerings and recognizing that everything that has been given to us has been given to us by God. We seek ancient wisdom in God's word. We gather together around one table and, wait and say we're not divided, we're one. And then we're blessed in the benediction and sent out into the world to be a blessing. And we celebrate holidays, not about romantic love, not... Holidays that aren't there to make us consumers. They're about things like the death of death and feasting and joy and patience and sobriety and sacrifice. And we just do this thing week in and week out and we celebrate the festivals year in and year out until we die. And if you do that with faith, it will transform you. But most of all, it will keep you tethered to the only thing that is worthy of your worship. You feel in this passage the crescendo that happens. They do the burnt offering thing and they do the Feast of Booths thing and then they lay the foundation of the temple and then they get like the, the band together and then they sing the song. Oh, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. I love that. They sing a song about his goodness, his love and loyalty to them, and how that goes on forever. Rooting our hearts in those realities is the most important thing that a human being can do. Because misdirected worship is the source of so much of our pain. It's when good things like family and friends and job and achieving and success, when those things become 
ultimate things. Man, it can really scar you because they're not always good. They're not loyal and steadfast. And none of them last forever. Why do, we get, why do some people get freaked out when, when they break up with someone? And others are sad, but they're not totally broken down. Why are some people scared to die and other people face death with peace and courage? Why can some folks be content with so little and others have so much, yet they're driven for more? The problem is worship. We worship things that aren't good when we have them. They don't hold on to us when we let them go. And they don't forgive us when we fail them. But for the Christians, we have Jesus. Who is like the steadfast love of the Lord in 3D. The goodness of the Lord in technicolor. The foreverness of the Lord's love. So tangible, so real, it took on flesh and it died for you. And it raised for you so that you can know that his loyalty and goodness to you lasts forever. Worship is one of the most powerful things because we use it to heal our hearts. Every true act of worship is me pulling my heart away from these other things and placing it on the one true God who can satisfy my soul. They believed that worship could bring people together. And they believed that worship could transform us by reshaping who we are, by directing what our heart worships. And finally, they believed that imperfect worship could still be powerful. I find this in verses 11 through 13. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. Now get this. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So what's the deal with the old dudes weeping, is the question in front of us. And these were folks that recognized that their worship was partial and imperfect and broken. So the temple, which was supposed to be where heaven and earth met, it wasn't like that all the time. (laughs) In fact, the temple that they built wasn't even as good as the last imperfect temple that they built. And so there's this unfavorable comparison with the ideal. But here's the thing. They showed up anyway. And they added their cries and their recognitions of pain to the shouts of praise that were happening. 
It's easy to be like the old people and to recognize the imperfections of church and to have that tempt us to stay away. If pandemic worship has taught me anything, it's that Christian worship services, by their very nature, cannot fulfill what they promise. Uh, Every week, what we're trying to do is usher finite people into the infinite love of God. What hymn or sermon or ritual can capture that? In many ways, we're chasing after the wind. We get hints of it. There's fits and starts. Hints of something just at the edge of our perception. But we never get to the thing itself. And if you add on top of that the fact that humans are so disappointing. Especially when they share their beliefs and values. But they're not our beliefs and values. Or when they don't live into the beliefs and values they say that they have. We see believers fail to display the deep love for neighbor that we read about in our sacred texts. We witness folks all the time compromise their deepest values. Integrity is in short supply. We attend services where people are unfriendly, where the sermons are not great, where the music is a struggle. And where instead of, instead of encountering the transcendent, we bump into the limits of human talent. And those frustrations, large and small, cause us to check out of religion. In the same way that we check out of a Zoom service in our living rooms. And yet these folks, in the presence of very broken and imperfect worship, came. And so did you, with your masks on and everything. And we come and we stay because we realize that worship isn't only about what worship gives us. It's about what we give to God. We come because it's like a small rebellion in a world that's trying to make you a hyper-individualistic consumer person. We do it because we're trying to become a certain kind of person, a person of love and charity and service. And so we push through the hardships and the limitations and we let our cries of disappointment mix with the shouts of praise. And ultimately we come because this is where Jesus is. We want to meet with him. And where he said he'll be is in the faces of the people he died for, ordaining their praise in the face of the person sitting next to you in the, in the pew, and certainly in the bread and cup that he said was his own body and blood. I guess I just want to reframe worship for us. What is it to you? For some people, worship the worship service is an experience. Something that's there to just jumpstart and awaken you spiritually to get you fired up again. If that's what worship is, you will only judge it by whether the sermon was good or whether you liked the music that day. But to see it as something more deeply formative. Something that has an effect on you because we do it all the time. That's shaping our hearts 
to making us a more humble, sacrificial, loving person. Or if we've just forgot worship altogether, we just, our, our understanding of Christian spirituality is like spirituality as life hack. It's what gets me through, it's, it's good if it makes me less anxious. If it helps me deal with my sorrows or pain, then it's good. Well, if that's all that Christianity gives you, you don't need worship at all. You can just take your book and your spiritual director and your walk around Holmes Lake and be fine. But that's not the kingdom of God, which requires others, which requires family, which requires formation, which requires hardship, which requires sacrifice, which requires the slow burn of doing imperfect worship together for a long time because that's where we find Jesus and Jesus is worth it. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Ezra chapter 3 and how it challenges us to think through what we think we're doing here when we come to worship. It makes us think that it's deeper than just a pump me up or an experience but it's about the people we meet here and the overlap of lives it's about uniting our hearts and minds to other Christians around the world and throughout the centuries it's about engaging in practices that will form us in ways that will create something other than just a consumer It's about imperfectly but really seeking the face of a God who is so beautiful that if we had one perfect act of worship where we could see Him as He truly was, our hearts would be completely healed. We would be tranquil, at peace, comforted, whole, and complete. And so we chase 